for the adoptee community, I think that there has been um, a lot of pain. There's a lot of problems and issues that need to be addressed, such as deportation, depression, suicide, identity issues. That includes, you know, just trying to find your birth family and um, just learning about who you are and trying to feel a sense of belonging within your own environment. It has been 70 years since Korean adoption has started, and yet still there is no services here in the U.S. that can actually address these issues for adult adoptees. Hello everybody, my name is Jane Jung Tranka. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and I live here now, but in between there, I was adopted to Frazee, Minnesota. Some people know me in the adoption community from um, the book Outsiders Within, which is in its second edition from University of Minnesota Press now. And um, some other people might know me from Language of Blood or Fugitive Visions, which are memoirs that I wrote about my adoption. My name is Amy Nofsker. I am a Korean adoptee and I was adopted to the United States, lived in Wisconsin until high school. In college, that's when I discovered that I was a Korean adoptee. And after that, I went back to um, Korea to live for some time. And then now I've uh, returned back in 2003 and I've been here residing in the States. I'm so pleased to talk with you, Amy, because we're both Augsburg graduates. Well, Jane, I have to say that I am actually also, I was also very honored to actually be in your book with um, Outsiders Within. And so I just want to say that I'm, I have been a personal fan of yours. And um, I think it's pretty ironic how you and I were both went to Augsburg College. And I just remember the first time I met you. Actually, I, it wasn't even a meeting. I remember the first time I literally saw you. We were both on the same dormitory floor in Ernest Hall. And I think you and I both walked out of our dormitory rooms and we both saw each other down the hallway. I think we both just turned around and went the other way because we didn't know what to do when we saw each other. And I'll never forget that. Oh, right. It's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I think it's just really, so we're both in our very late 40s, right? Yes. And I'm just, you know, just kind of thinking about life like this is like really i mean like i was i was so um honored to have you contribute to outsiders within in, in the first edition i knew about what you were doing and so forth and you know like life keeps going and i can kind of see like how your life is unfolding and i just think it's really amazing and, and it's so crazy that we were both at augsburg <laughs> and Ernest on the sixth floor sharing a bathroom <laughs> and I, I remember I remember when I saw you too because you had this like really cool black leather jacket. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> you did. You had the coolest black leather jacket and you had cool friends. And you were so cooperative and you were all up in the Asian American uh group, right? With with Leaf and Vincent. Yes, I had just joined because she had chased me down my freshman year and sophomore year, and it was junior was when I started to get really heavily involved. But I also did the same thing to Limon when I first met her or in the hallway, and she kept on chasing me down. And I, I was scared when I saw another Asian face, and I turned around and ran the other way. So how did you come around to um, deciding that you were going to be involved in that? Because I think Lee Hoon was so persistent and she just, she knew my name and she just kept on, she just, she literally chased me down the hall saying, Amy, Amy, are you Amy? And I was like, who is this lady? <laughs> and so she was so persistent with me every single year. And I finally just one day stopped and said, okay, I'm just going to have enough guts to talk to this, to this lady who looks like me. And so I did, and she was the one that really made me feel like it was okay to talk to her and to other people that looked like me. And she was the one that made me feel comfortable and realize that there are other people that looks like me. And then when she addressed the fact that I was an adoptee, which I never really ever talked about or actually um, was okay with, she then started to introduce me and telling me that it's really important that I should someday try to learn about being Korean, where I came from, and meeting other Koreans to learn about it. And so I thought about it for a while, and that was probably, I feel like, where I started to do my 
um, search for who I really was. Because of her, I think she really, really changed my life and opened up my mind. And so after college is when I decided to go back to Korea. And I did. And when I went back to Korea, I didn't have anything here in the U.S. that was holding me back. And I just felt, um, I guess I just felt very alone and very confused. And so I decided just to go back to the to Korea. And I picked up everything. And when I went to Korea, I went there with $200 in my pocket. Um, <laughs> You're so great. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what I was doing. I had a friend that actually told me about, she was a Korean adopted mother. She had told me about this article or showed me this article and encouraged me to apply to get a job in, when I went to Korea. And I did. And it was teaching English. And I did that. So that was, um, I think it's, it's something I'll never, ever would want to change. It's, it was all about my adoption journey. And I'm really glad I did that. Wow. So you tell the story in the book about the trouble that happened to you in Gumi. Do you want oh to talk about that? <laughs> sure. I can't remember exactly what I said in the book, but um, so just to kind of backtrack from Gumi, because it, it kind of started of how I got to Gumi. When I arrived, and so I was just sharing with you, when I left for Korea, I got on the airplane. I It was a long flight. I didn't really know what I was doing. I wasn't really prepared. I didn't know what to expect. I think it was, I was 25 years old. I was pretty young, 24. I was pretty young. And um, when I got there, I was expecting to meet a person that I thought I had arranged to pick me up and go and live in Incheon and to uh, teach English at a Hagwon, which is called a language center. So I thought I had done the right things. I had arranged everything. I had done the paperwork for it. I applied with the Hagwon. And when I arrived at the airport, nobody, sh nobody was there to pick me up. And I just kind of panicked for a little bit. <laughs> and I was actually, I ended up somehow, I don't know, I, you know, and some of this is such a blur now, because I don't know what I did. I think I must have stayed at some hotel outside of the airport because nobody picked me up for, it was like two or three days, I think. And I ended up trying to call them and call them. And I was panicking and freaking out because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know a single person in Korea. I didn't know the language. I didn't know anything about Korea. And so then they finally came and picked me up, this man. who And when he picked me up, he was the guy that I had actually arranged, made my arrangements. He apologized. In my arrangements before I came to Korea, I was told that I was going to be staying with, because I was given an option, do I want to stay in an apartment with other English teachers, or do I want to stay in a Korean family home with a uh, mother, father, and two children to learn about Korea? And I chose the, the later option to actually uh, be in a homestay with the family so I could actually really learn and embrace about the Korean culture and family. Uh, when this gentleman, or man, I should say, not even a gentleman, when he was bringing me to his home, because I, um, I, I asked him about his wife and children, and he said in the car as we were driving to his home that he's actually not married, and he has no children, and that he was just living with his mother, and I was kind of freaked out, and I was, I didn't know, what, and I said, but I thought you said that, you know, because we had these conversations, and this is what you had wrote me in an email saying that you were married and you had two children and he said no and so I said well what am I supposed to do and he's like well you are still going to be teaching for me I have children that come and you'll be doing a lot of private classes and you'll also be teaching at the language institute so I said okay but it actually didn't really turn out that way and so he first you know the first couple of days he didn't bring me to the language institute and and then I kept on asking what should I do and then, you know, when I met his mother, she didn't speak a word of English, but she just, she didn't talk to me either. She wasn't, she, has, she wasn't welcome, welcoming or friendly and just never, she never talked to me. It was an apartment, three bedrooms. And so I did have my own bedroom. And so finally he, um, I just kept on asking and I was kind of, um, 
I wasn't persistent, but I, maybe I was, I, you know, because I was also very shy at that time, too. I kept on asking, and he finally brought me to the Language Institute. I met the other English teachers, and that's when I just thought, and I met the director, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I wish I was here now, you know, with the other teachers, because this something's not right. I felt very uncomfortable in the whole situation. And so when I felt very uncomfortable, I expressed that to him, and I just kept on saying that I don't feel comfortable. Well, he told me that if I want to, then I can just teach there. So I said, okay, well, can you show me how to get there from your, from your home? And he said, and so he says, well, here's the address. And, and this time, I mean, I was brand new to Korea, so I didn't even know how to read Korean. And he said, well, here's the address. You'll, here's the bus, and you'll just have to listen to the stop. And I thought, well, I don't know what this means. I don't know where the stop is. And so I did, I took the bus, but I had no idea where I was. Everything looked exactly the same. I was, um, finally, I went up to this woman and when I was on the bus, because the bus just kept on driving and driving and driving. She took my hand and she brought me around and she brought me to the languages too. And it got, I arrived to the Hagwan and I expressed how uncomfortable I felt. When I expressed myself to the uh, Hagwan director, he just said, you know, just take time and, you know, Mr. Kim is a good guy, you know, and so um, you'll be fine. Three months had gone by, and at that time, I would receive letters, uh, apparently from my family, my, my siblings, and some of my friends, but I didn't know it. And then my brothers and sisters started calling, and I had no idea that they were calling. And so apparently I found out later, when the phone rang, that my brother, all of a sudden my brother, uh, Mr. Kim said, Amy, the phone is for you. And I said, oh, and so I answered the phone, and my brother Paul was just a little... I think he was extremely worried, and so was my sister, because they were wondering what happened to me. And I, and I thought, what do you mean? And I, and I said, I'm sorry, I haven't called you. And they said, no, we've been trying to call you. But Mr. Kim said that he was going to let you know that we've been calling, and we've also sent mail. And I was not receiving the phone calls or mail. And so I'd asked Mr. Kim about it. He, he did admit it. And um, that's when he started telling me that he wanted me he told me that he actually brought me there because he, he saw my picture and because Koreans are really big on pictures of people and image as Jane, as you know. And he said that he wanted me to be his, he brought me over because he wanted me to be his concubine and he wanted me to be his wife. And I was obviously very young at the time and he was in his 40s. I think he was like 42 or something like that. And I was totally freaked out and it was very uncomfortable and that's when I just I guess I I, I I knew this was not a good place for me and so I told him that I did not want to be there and then he threatened to just deport me from Korea um, and so I was devastated because I had barely gotten to know Korea at that time I felt because I you know I was sitting here trying to navigate my, my environment, trying to make sure that I was in a safe place. I knew there, there was something not right, and I was, trying to, I was trying to trust the process, and it didn't feel good to me. And so I went back to the director, and the director said, fine. And so he, brought, he told me he had a friend in Gumi, which is um, a smaller town south of Seoul. Um, and so I said, that's fine. I will go there. And so he had a friend there. And when I was brought to Gumi, I went there and it was his friend and he was a Hagwan director. Well, this director was very kind, but you could tell he would bring me to the different government agencies and have them a very large wad of money. And he would say, look, I'm bribing them and very proud of it, by the way. <laughs> look, I'm bribing the government officials so you can stay here in the country. And so <laughs> I was a little shocked because I was learning um, a side of Korean culture that I did not expect to learn very quickly. <laughs> and so I, I, I didn't fully understand what was going on at first. And I was just like, I figured it out afterwards. And there was, uh, um, so I was teaching in this, his name was also Mr. Kim. <laughs> and so I was teaching in his Hagwan and there were many Korean, uh, native Korean teachers as well teaching. And then there was one Canadian teacher. 
and he was a male. His name was Todd. Well, the Canadian male teacher who was white was very, very, he was very favored by Mr. Kim. As I was teaching, I was, I had to teach all of the, all the uh, factories. So it was all the engineers that put together our phones and iPads or not iPads, I should say phones and tablets and, and well, at that time it was beepers and, and so on. So they're the ones that um, the engineers from Samsung and LG, the electronic companies that I had to teach. And I had some great students, but that's when four months down the road, well, well, between those four months, I had been working there. Um, the first month I got paid, and then after that, we did not get paid and for several months. And the teachers were upset. And, and in Korea, as Jane would know, that you only get paid once a month. And so in a very large lump sum. And so one of my students um, who no longer became a, was a student of mine had actually liked me and asked me out on a date, went on a date with him. And then he um, found out about how we were not getting paid for several months. And then he went to the director and demanded for me to get paid. And then um, by that time, I was just so, I, I just was not trusting the process and enjoying my life in Korea because I was trying so hard to try to fit in. I had so many comments on how, you know, from students, um, you know, how I should be Korean, that I am Korean, but don't tell anybody that I'm an adoptee and just so many different uh, things that I was experiencing in Korea, really trying to fit in and trying to figure out who I am and what my life would have been like if I would have lived in Korea and never been adopted. That was what I was experiencing for several years. And so I ended up staying in Gumi for about a good year, a little over a year. But during that time, I had, I would have to say, made the mistake by getting engaged to this Korean man who helped me try to get paid. And um, I made the mistake because I was just so alone and I was so confused of who I was and trying to fit in and trying to have anybody accept me because I felt like everything was always my fault. And so I did that. And so when I was engaged to him, I moved in to an apartment, but then it was not a good um, decision of mine. And he became very, very, he would, he, he would, I never saw him. He would be working all day long and then he didn't want me to work at all. And I wanted to teach because I was, I was in a small town. So I was bored out of my mind and I had no one to talk to, but he wouldn't let me teach. And then he would bring his mom and brother over and, and they would want me to cook and clean for them all day long. And it was just, uh, it was not a good fit for me. <laughs> it was not me. And so that's when I started to visit Seoul. And I, I visited Seoul every single weekend. I would leave, you know, right uh, after work on Friday and I would, would return on Sundays because my, the man that I was engaged to was never home anyway. He was always out drinking on business trips or whatever. And um, so that's when I started meeting a lot of Korean adoptees and I discovered that there were adoptees that were going through not the same exact situations, but similar situations as I am trying to find and navigate Korea on our own. And so that's when I felt like that there needed to be something in Korea to help adoptees because I knew I wasn't the only one there or I wasn't the only adoptee that was going to return back to Korea and do the same thing to do some soul searching or to just go back to Korea to do for various reasons. And so that's when I started doing the paperwork and writing up a lot of ways, goals, mission, kind of like a business plan of how I think that there should be a nonprofit built in Korea for adoptees to assist them. So I did that. I started that in uh, 96 and then 97. I really started, you know, uh, providing this paperwork to, and then I met some government officials in Korea, in Seoul. And that's when I started working with them. And I tried meeting some adoptees, a lot of adoptees. It was so much convincing just for them to even join a meeting. It was like begging people to join. And that's when I realized adoptees were just also not feeling very stable. 
not so I don't you know not mentally it was more about the physical piece and the the the, the job wise because at that time the F4 visa there was not a visa for adoptees to be able to stay in Korea so we had to leave the country every three months um, I went to Fukuoka Japan a lot um, <laughs> I did end up going to America and and Europe a few times too during those times I had to renew my visa. So even though that I had uh, a contract with the Hagwon, it wasn't always very stable and there were times that I had to leave the country. And so, yes, it wasn't, um, and it was because we were known as foreigners. So it was hard, it was hard to digest for me to know that I was a foreigner and uh, I, cause I didn't feel like a foreigner there. I felt like it was my, my birth country, it was my, Motherland is, it was a place that I felt like I should belong. I should be able to go. But in reality, that was not the case. And so in 98, I was able to find several adoptees, literally begging them to come at, to a meeting and join me to hear about what we could do. We had one meeting and unfortunately there was a lot of infighting amongst adoptees. I didn't even know who uh, half of adoptees and I was very confused because I had never seen, you know, I had never, I would I was not aware. Someone said that there's always fighting with adoptees, but um, I was not aware of that. And I didn't, I, I guess I didn't believe it. There was actually even an actual physical fight as well. That's legendary now. It wasn't even there, but I heard about it. <laughs> it was between a man and a woman. I was like shocked. I was like, oh my gosh. It was between this American guy and this European woman. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> it was, and so I had never seen that. Yeah, so I, it was it was interesting, <laughs> to, and that was really a, a good introduction of the Korean adopted community for me as well. You know, because I wasn't aware. <laughs> I just all all I wanted to do was create this organization. <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to do something. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting, so I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know how to take that, but um, I tried to stay out of it as much as I could. So they all fled right away after the first meeting. There were a couple of adoptees that stayed behind, you know, they, and it was me really literally begging them to. And then what happened was I ended up getting, somehow I, I had some Korean friends and they got me an interview with uh, a couple newspapers such as Jungang Ilbo, and it was a pretty powerful uh, article. And then um, some uh, TV documentaries that had happened. And then from there, a lot of Koreans came and joined and wanted to help. It was it was amazing because I had several hundred phone calls to navigate and a lot of um, Koreans that were willing to just be there and help get the organization started. And that's when I just kind of settled with Native Koreans to help with this mission. And then when adoptees came and joined, I would have them join if they could. And that's how the backbone of Goal actually started. Because of the many, many hundreds, I'd have to say a good 600 volunteers, Native Korean, to help um, with this effort in the very beginning and sustain and help me sustain it for the first, I would have to six, say six, seven years. That's, that's how Goal has become very, very sustainable. We did a lot of great things. We had some tours. We held several conferences, international conferences for adoptees in Korea and um, a lot of birth searches, translation, homestays, language classes, cultural classes. And it was not just Korean adoptees from the U.S. It was um, from uh, Europe and um, Australia and Canada. So it was very, very well received. Well, I want to thank you so much for laying that groundwork because it's been really important to my life to have the F4 visa. So for people who don't know about the F4 visa, that's the visa that is almost as good as citizenship. So we don't have to have, uh, our, our visa state isn't connected to our job and we don't have to like go and run to Japan. You know, like basically we can live here, right? So do, do you wanna talk a little bit more about like that that um, process to get adoptees included for a F4 visa? Well, the F4 visa has changed quite a bit. The process has, because when we first worked with the Korean government on it, they didn't have a whole lot of regulations around it. And it was just a new visa at first where they, it was going to be open, not just for Korean adoptees, but also for Korean, I would have to say Korean immigrants around the world, excluding China and Vietnamese Koreans. That was what the understanding when it first came out. 
I know there was a lot of protests around there after, uh, several years after, and then I did not, I have not kept up with that to see where that, that piece is at. But for a lot of Korean Americans or Australian, Korean, Canadian, Korean, and so on, a lot of uh, Korean immigrants, if they can prove, or Korean adoptees, if they can prove that they are Korean, they are able to obtain this F4 visa. The F4 visa basically was created to allow you to stay in Korea for the first two years without having to leave the country. And if you wanted to renew your visa, you can renew it also without having to leave the country. So that has been just amazing. It saved me a lot of money in the end. And I'm sure a lot of adoptees also, because I think one of the things, it just it wasn't a welcoming environment as well, because I'm sure there are a lot of even overseas Koreans that weren't adopted felt like that they the younger generation would want to stay in Korea but they could not as well because we were foreigners so that process was just very simple and easy we just had to go to the adoption agency and get a certificate proving that we were adopted from the adoption agency and uh, so we had to approve right our paperwork and make an appointment with the adoption agency you still have to do that today however though I know there are a lot more regulations around that and goal who's actually been very at the forefront and has been, um, I think they've handled um, in providing this information and helping adoptees when they come to Korea still today to actually, they actually help assist um, with some of that paperwork. There are certain things though, when they did create this visa saying that if you stay in Korea, there's certain jobs you cannot hold and you should not be doing. And those were, they kept on saying the three Ds. It was like they did not want you to do a dirty job, a dangerous job, and a difficult. But yes, a difficult job. There we go. So yes, they kept on saying the three Ds. I lived here for 15 years on that visa. And then I got my citizenship. So The dual citizenship. Yeah. That's great. Uh, and thank you. Thank you to um, all the people who worked at Goal because that came to you because of adoptee activism and Pastor Kim at Koru, you know, continuously working with us. So I'm benefiting a lot from your work. Thank you. Well, that's what it's supposed to do, though. It was supposed to provide some kind of rights for, I felt like it was a right for adoptees, you know, just provide some kind of rights and advocacy for adoptees, especially if they're in trouble by the law or if they just need a phone. I mean, that was like some of the basic, simplest things is to try to get a phone. I always had to have a native Korean sponsor me so I could have a phone in Korea. That was very frustrating. So um, just the small, simplest things that you thought or we take for granted, those are things we could not have or not allowed to have in Korea. So you built this incredible organization and you built a lot of infrastructure and helped out a lot of people and then you left. So what made you decide that you were going to leave? I think when I went back to, when I went back to the States, something opened up my eye and I realized I didn't want to teach English for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I just, and I had not really built a career in the U.S. to, to, come to Korea and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a PR director, or I have experience in, you know, HR or whatever, you know, or in social work. And so I taught English. Um, I, I worked full time and I built goal on the side as a volunteer the entire time I was there in America to be able to work off of that in Korea, you know, because I know a lot of adoptees now are able to come to Korea they built it. They were smart. They built a career in the U.S. and then came over to Korea and was able to do something. Or maybe they're just all smarter than me. That also is probably possible. But but um, I just um, so I was just because I like I said I came out right after college. I went back to Korea and I had no job experience except just teaching English. That was probably one of the reasons why. Also, I think it's because my my brother had, uh, by that time, he had three children and they were very young and my sister had children and I just wanted to, I saw myself every year missing out. So um, I think that's what I, that's what really triggered me to actually come back to the States is just to be with my family and getting to know them. And in the United States, you created Adoptee Hub. So can you tell a little bit about that? Well, actually, I didn't create Adoptee Hub right away. So I had 
came back to Korea or back to the U.S. in 2003, and I have to say I struggled a lot coming back to the U.S. It was literally I had no credit because I was gone for more. I was gone for a long time. I had to build a credit. I couldn't even rent an apartment because I had no credit. It took me a good five years to actually settle back down here in the U.S. trying to figure out how to build a credit, how to find a job, how to understand the American market or job market, uh, trying to figure out what I want to do with my career and with my life. I was just, I, I felt like it was like this reverse culture shock as well, coming back to the U.S. So I have to say it's not easy going back to the U.S. after living in a foreign country for so long. During that process, I realized that if I were to build, because they kept on saying in the job market, if you were to volunteer at nonprofits, you know, it helps with you know, getting a job. And I've started to volunteer quite a bit for a lot of Asian organizations in Minnesota to actually help build references and credibility here <laughs> um, in order to get a job or uh, a career job or figure out what I wanted to do. And it was great because it was just learning about the different Asian communities here in, in Minnesota and then um, learning about the nonprofits and how they run here in Minnesota. From there, that's when I, well, someone taught me Facebook or told me about Facebook. I didn't know much about it. And that's when I discovered Facebook. I'm not much, I'm not on it much and I still don't know how to use much of it, but as I am on Facebook, I would see notifications about adoptees struggling, adoptees asking lots of questions, identity questions, birth search questions, just a lot of questions. And then just doing research, trying to discover and finding that um, they're still after uh, what the Korean War has started, had, had occurred almost, almost 70 years ago. And after almost 70 years, still yet, there are no solid post-adoption services here for adult Korean adoptees um, in the U.S. And that's when I realized, like, oh my goodness. And I, and I kind of waited. I, I just, I didn't do much right away. I've been back from Korea for almost 20 years and I kind of waited for something to happen and nothing really happened. I was waiting for someone to build something and nothing happened. And so that's why I decided just uh, in 2017, I did some research. 2018, I decided to do some, because I thought about it a long time. I didn't want to just like build something. And I just had to do my research to try to figure out if this would be successful and how and what are people looking for and needing. And 2018, I decided to do the paperwork. And um, 2019, we launched and did our first event. And then now we um, have been you know, holding different events. And we're going to build, build slowly to be able to uh, provide uh, some of the services that we are trying to do. And at the same time, we are trying to provide some events, for, uh, just resources online, virtual resources for people. What do you think it is that adoptees need for services? Some of the things that I had seen on Facebook quite a bit, I see a lot of adoptees, the way they express themselves, they're, they're in pain. And I think they have nowhere to turn. It's hard to find each other. And the great thing is there's a couple great resources out there when the ICA gathering occurs. I think that's a wonderful resource for adoptees to meet each other. Or there are small local organizations within each within some states, which are great for adoptees that live there. But there are adoptees that don't live so close to these local organizations. And so trying to find a way to reach out to adoptees virtually to let them know that there are things that exist for them. I am trying to uh, overcome that barrier. So some of the things that we are looking at is we are building a birth search portal and a service portal, and that will take some time. But this birth search portal is um, something where we want to provide a space for birth mothers or family to finally be able to have a space to put their information in when they're trying to find their children. So talking to adoption agencies in the past couple of years, because I've gone to Korea a few times now, and they've been saying that birth families don't have any place to put their information to search for their children. That's where I realized 
we need to build a portal. And this portal would be for birth families to be able to put their information in Korean and upload the information of their children that they're searching for in this portal. At the same time, the same portal, adoptees would be able to upload their information in, and we will be building on the back end queries and matching data to actually start matching information. So birth families who have agreed to search for their family, for their children, and adoptees who have agreed to search for family, which both parties, and that's another thing, we wanted to make sure that both parties agree um, that this would be a safe place for them to search for each other. And then as we start going through the information and data, we are hoping that the more and more birth families and the more and more adoptees that start registering through this portal and information starts matching, we will be having caseworkers on the back end and some technology, heavy um, on the technology developers to be able to query and match a lot of this information to start having matches. I believe that a birth search is more than just finding each other. I believe that it's about beforehand preparing the adoptee to do that search, uh, preparing them of what could happen, um, providing them any kind of therapy or counseling and support for that. And not just in the beginning, but while it happens, also providing translation as well as um, providing uh, that support after the reunion. One of the things I find that a lot of adoptees that when they do reunite, there's a lot of questions, a lot more questions that happen. And adoptees don't have that support or resources to try to figure out what just happened. Why is my birth family acting this way? Why do I feel this way? What happens if I do this? Or why is my family being this way? So having to deal with all of that by yourself alone and not understanding a whole lot about Korea or the culture or even your family, birth family, and then even also doing maybe with your adoptive family. It's just, it's a lot. And I just don't think that people should have to go through those if there could be resources built for them. They don't have to go through those alone anymore. So that's what we are hoping to build. Oh, that's amazing. I really look forward to that um, coming to fruition. About birth family search, I think a small fraction of us probably are reunited with our birth families or will be reunited with our birth families. And it seems like most adopted people, though, they have to live with not being reunited, right? That is correct. And you're one of those people, yeah, Amy? Yes, I am. So, I mean, if, if that's like the reality, you know, like, how, how do you how do you deal with it? Yeah, um, I think that's a good question. I think every adoptee is different, and it really depends on how our adoption journey is taking us and the resources that we may have. And uh, for me, it was, I mean, I initially went back to Korea to actually do a birth search. Growing up here in the U.S., my adoptive parents had died. I lost, my, my father was, um, had left my family when I was young, about 10 years old. And my, my adoptive mother passed away before I even graduated from high school. And so I had been on my own since I was 17. So for me, I think it was more, I mean, I would have to say it was very important to me to find any kind of biological parents uh, when I went to Korea. But as I lived in Korea, as long as I did, and as much as I searched in Korea, and as much media I was on within Korea, and not having the right documentation or information or all the information that I needed to find my family. It took me a long time to actually accept because I was living it every day and trying to figure those pieces out. And I, I still today wish I could find my biological family. And I think just coming back to the States, I had not tried. And I think it's just, for me, it took me a long time to accept that I may never be able to find my family, but um, it always made me feel like a step closer to help others. Like it always made me happy to know that others could find their families. And that for me was also really, really important for some reason that other people could actually have a piece of their soul. And I want to help so many more people. I just realized that some, that either for me, it was not meant to be, and it was something I just had to accept, but for others, it doesn't hurt to try. 
That's so beautiful. Um, you said that when you're reading what adoptees are posting online, that you see a lot of people in pain. Why do you think that is? I see adoptees either yelling or screaming, asking for help. I see adoptees trying to get attention. I see adoptees angry at each other or blaming each other for maybe something that could be the most simplest miscommunication. What in 2018, when I did when I did the paperwork with our lawyer to get Adoptee Hub up, I also at that year I was so devastated because there were four adoptees within I would have to say the span of three months that had just committed suicide, and that to me was very sad and devastating because it just felt like we could have prevented this somehow, some way. Something has to be done, and that's not knew that adoptees are committing suicide. I think there have been studies by some other adoptees saying that adoptees have a high rate of committing suicide. And I did not mention this, but when I left for Korea to live there several years ago, one of my very close friends committed suicide a month after I got to Korea. And I had just given him all of my furniture so he could go to college and live in a dormitory. And then a month later, I found out he had committed suicide. Hearing adoptees committing suicide and then hearing families, even years later, struggling because their child had committed suicide, it's just so sad to me and nothing's done about it still. And then I've heard so many adoptees that have been brought to a mental health institution because their adoptive families put them there. And then they're stuck there and they're put on drugs thinking that, oh, Let's just put them in a mental health institute and then take and then they'll be fine. But actually, I think the mental health institute makes it worse for adoptees. And I know there are adoptees there that shouldn't even be there. And so those things have just our community are is hurting in so many ways. And it feels like our community is very invisible to the mainstream. We as a community, as I'm trying to apply for grants. It feels like we don't get the equal opportunity as much as another group would. And I guess I'm trying to yell and scream for our community to the mainstream. Please understand who we are. Please take the time to learn who we are and and even to assist us as we are applying for grants so we can help our own community. So Amy, I I, um, lived with a guy who was very beloved, and he ended his life in Korea three years ago. It was three years ago oh. on New Year's New Year's Eve morning. He ended his life, and he sent me a text message 20 minutes before he ended his life, and I was sleeping. Oh. I didn't pick it up. I found it the next morning, and I he died with his... Um, with my address in his pocket. So the police came to my door first. I was uh, in touch with his Korean family and his American family. So I contacted them because they are the people who need to take care of things. And then when we found out where the body was, I didn't have childcare. I had my, my child with me. So we went to the morgue and looked at his body. I had to bring my child in because I didn't have anybody to take care of her. Like he if I needed somebody to take care of my child at that time, like he would have been that person, but he was in the drawer. So I really think about this, actually, the suicide thing. I think about him and how he was and how he wasn't going to ask for help. And that was the kind of person he was. I'm still thinking about this. It's going to be three years at the end of this year, thinking about like what could have been different. Yeah. You know, and I think another thing is that we need to recognize that. And when it's being recognized, I just, I I feel like, I feel like our community has so much pain and anger. It leads us to only care for ourselves and not to be kind to each other. It feels like it makes our community separated at times. Our, Our community has so many issues and that's what's just so frustrating. We have this high suicide rate. We have the deportation piece where adoptees are being deported. And they hadn't, you know, they didn't even have a choice to come to the U.S. They were just forced to come here. And then now being sent back to the, back to Korea without a choice. The way we've been treated, it just feels like 
we're, we're human beings and we were children and now we're adults, but yet still we were expected to come to a country with a foreign family, foreign language customs and expected to blend in. But then if we had not gotten our citizenship, then we're expected to go back. It just feels like our the way our community has just been treated hasn't been very respectful. And so I just feel like we need to do something. We need to stand up and do something. And for me, the only way I can do that is just by trying to create some services or something for adoptees to be able to have. That's so amazing how you've dedicated so many years of your life to helping other people. And and now you have kids too, right? Yes, two kids. My husband's a Korean adoptee, as you know, Aaron. He's a tech guy. He and I actually, because I've always wanted to adopt. When I went to Korea and I was um, visiting my orphanage quite a bit, that's when I realized I really, really want to adopt. I wanted to adopt from my orphanage. But um, we did not adopt from Korea in the end because <laughs> that's another story. But the, the, the process of adopting from Korea these days is extremely, extremely complicated, difficult, and expensive. And so unfortunately, because I'm older, and so I ended up just, we had, uh, there's like, a, like an age limit that you can adopt from Korea. So we ended up just adapting from China four years ago, and we adopted our daughter, Adeva, from China. At, um, she was three and a half. She is now seven. Yep. So Adeva's seven and Aiden's 11. So when, when your youngest was five, you started? Yes. What about Adeva's birth family search? How does that work in China? Our first priority is to actually work with the Korean adoptee community because it's, it's one of the largest and first uh, international adoption community. However, we would like to, as soon as, you know, down the road, when we do have a good program developed for the Korean adoptees, we would like to expand it to other international adoptees, such as Chinese adoptees and Guatemalan adoptees. But I just believe one step at a time is important in order to be successful. And so one of the things is I thought about in the back of my mind, and when we did the adoptions, we had to go to China for, for Deva. I asked a lot of questions about her birth family. The information we got was absolutely zero, nothing. She was raised in the orphanage since day one. So she was literally found at the age of one day, brought to the police station, and then they brought her to the orphanage when she was one day old. So she had literally grown up in the orphanage since then. And we believe it's from the, you know, how China has that law you know, one child per family. That law has changed now, I think, to two or more. Or that was after Adeva was born. They believe and we believe that she was abandoned because of those reasons. But it was interesting because when we did the adoption with her, they had to make up an excuse of why she was being adopted out of the country. So they said that she was a carrier hepatitis B. And so I said, oh, well, I'm a carrier of hepatitis B because I found that out when I was pregnant with my son. When we brought her here, I immediately got her checked out and tests and stuff. They said, no, she's not a carrier of hepatitis B. She's fine. I think they said that they had to do that to get her out of the country because if nothing was wrong with her, they'd have to keep her in the country. I think that's one of their laws. But um, when it comes to birth search for Deva, I have pictures of her in the orphanage and we have videos and we talk about it as she's growing up. And um, we always tell her like, you know, mommy was adopted and daddy was adopted. And so, well, I, I think it makes her feel good that she, you know, she's not the only person that was adopted. And we always talk about how now we're a family together and we found each other. And so I, I do want to bring her to um, China as she grows, as she gets older. And when she's ready, visit her orphanage and stuff. She is actually learning Chinese. I have her, because one of the things that Jane, I think you and I, I it would have been great for us to be able to go to a Korean immersion school when we were growing up. And we didn't have that. We didn't have those resources. And for Adeva, I actually have her attending a Chinese immersion school. She absolutely loves it. She spoke a little Chinese here, and she has been able to continue some of that um, going into school here. We had actually signed up Aiden to go to that school and before we even thought about adapting from China. 
because we had intentions of adapting from Korea. So Aiden had been going to the Chinese school because we wanted him to have to learn another language. And um, I really wanted Aiden to have some role models that look like him or to have his peers to look like him too as well. Um, and so that was important to me. And I'm sure you understand that, Jane, just growing up in an all-white society, it's, it's hard to always feel and look different. Aiden is very precious to me because he's my only, as you know, so I had not found my biological family, so he's my only biological blood to me. So, and Aaron, he has found his family. Um, I found his family 10 years ago. Oh my goodness. Wow. So do you, do you come and see his family? Yes. We, so what happened was his father had committed suicide and then they had to let Aaron go. He has two older brothers and then the two older brothers saw what happened to Aaron, how he was put in the orphanage, and the brothers begged to stay in the to stay with the mom, and the mom ended up get, putting them in with family members until she could get back on her feet. She had to give her sons back to the dad's family at that time, but when they got older, the family did give the children back so she could stabilize herself. So one brother's four years older and the other brother's two years older. The one, the middle boy, he had been searching for Aaron and couldn't find him and he committed suicide. So, yeah, so Aaron's biological dad and brother commit suicide. And so he has one brother left in his biological dad. I'll communicate with her once in a while in Korea, but not often. And he says it's because of the language barrier. We have actually partnered with professional conference translators in Korea. And they have actually agreed to partner with Adoptee Hub to provide their translators for free for adoptees around the world. Wow, it's a lot that you're doing. As far as like adoption itself, what, what do you think is needed for the adoption process? I have to share with you, when I went through the adoption process with Adeva, I was, I have to say, I was appalled. <laughs> I was appalled about how things were done. What kind of things were happening? Well, it, we first started with the Korea program. It was a very long, unclear process. We had part-time workers, four uh, agency workers, social workers with us within the span of nine months, four different social workers. And they were all part-time and they weren't communicating with each other and it was very frustrating. We had to submit our paperwork in four times, four different times. Uh, they did not communicate the process by saying, oh, here's the process. You would want to get all of this paperwork and then do X, Y, and Z. And then you would want to submit that again for this and this and the same thing for this and this. They did not communicate that information. So after the first time we got all of the paperwork in, which took a long time, trying to obtain paperwork from all over the place, uh, a couple of months later, they said, oh, by the way, you have to do it again for this. We're like, well, why didn't you tell us that? Because we could have done that at the same time. And they said, oh, no, you know, that's just a formality we have to do. And it has to be within a certain time period. And we're like, okay, well, so then we did that. And then the third time they asked us again. And we're just like, what? And like, what are you talking about? We just did that like twice. And so it was just, they did that to us for four times. It was very frustrating, and I think just as a user experience, it was very unorganized, and there wasn't a lot of communication, but yet the first thing up front, they wanted a whole lot of money, and so that was very frustrating. And so we all know that money, it costs a lot of money, and we all know that the process takes, it's very, very cumbersome, and I just didn't realize how cumbersome it was. And when I, we attended their required classes, as you may know, and those required classes, I was appalled, not so much by the agency, but by the families that were adopting, because they showed a video of adult adoptees talking about their difficulties. I had some comments just saying that, you know, I think we should be a little more respectful of the adoptees that, uh, in the video, that had talked about their experience, because they were bad, because I think there were about 20 families. They immediately said, oh, that's not going to happen to our child. And I said, well, you know, we're like, and my husband and I, Aaron and I, were the only adult adoptees there, period. Everyone else were uh, brand new, going to be parents or, you know, and Caucasian. And they just 
it, it didn't sound like they had a whole lot of cultural um, experience or exposure. And so they just, a lot of families were saying, nope, that's not going to happen to our child. We're going to raise our child and our child's going to be this way. And I kept on trying to speak in a very nice, gentle way by saying, but, you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, that you know, there are going to be questions that your children are going to ask. And I just felt like they didn't, they had their mind made up. And that was very frustrating for me to see these families this way. And so I just thought, I wonder if a lot of adoptive families go through this and they have their mind up, made up saying that they may have heard horrible things, but they're not going to respect they're not going to respect the child as they get older. So that just made me question a whole lot. And it just felt like I wish the agency would have stepped in a little more and spoke up, but they did not. They just kind of let it happen. It, it, it just felt like it was, they could have prevented a whole lot of things right there up front in those classes and they weren't. So the other piece that was kind of interesting is we have, we were required to take several classes, online classes through the, through the Hague and um, the federal government and all of the questions were geared towards Caucasian or white people that have no exposure to diversity or culture. It was not geared towards a couple like Aaron and I, or even a biracial couple. So it was questions like, have you ever seen another Asian before? Have you ever <laughs> eaten any kind of Asian food? <laughs> I mean, it was things like that. And I'm thinking, what the heck? <laughs> and I'm thinking this is not this is not good and so one of the things that I honestly Jane would love to do down the road is I'd love to just provide input it would be nice to have a, a working task team of adult adoptees to say we need uh, researchers and scholars and saying we need to have input with the hay about these tests and the classes that should be required for the adoption agencies there should be some change here on the U.S. side. The questions and the classes, I just think, are not built or created for parents to actually really, really, really prepare themselves for adoption. Like just what you're saying about this process where they're losing paperwork and you've got four different social workers within like nine months. How can they possibly screen anybody? I mean, like, obviously, it's all about money. You know, thankfully, you and Aaron are good people, but like there's a whole bunch of people who are not, right? Like, how do they screen them out? They don't. They don't know. They can't. I don't. They can't. And they, I don't think they did. And I don't know if it was just that agency or what, but this is a pretty well known agency and one of, and the only agency that does international adoption here in Minnesota right now. So, yeah, I mean, like this just tells us how much importance that they place on, on like this really life changing decision that's going to happen to this kid. I mean, it's all formalities, right? I mean, like they, they try to keep making these systems tighter and better and whatever, but like if in the end you're going to staff it like that, what can you do? You know, I would love to see, Jane, I would love to create a really good adoption curriculum and have it mandatory work, like partner with the, with the Hay and have it mandatory through the feds and for the adoption agencies to have to follow this tight curriculum for adoptive parents. This is going to continue and continue and the children are going to grow up like us and have so many questions and so much confused, lost, angry, depressed. That is just what's going on right now. One of the things is I'm finding that adoptives need to be kind to each other. I think we're just all so frustrated and there's a lot of anger out there and we need to come together and we're not. Yeah. I think there's a lot of lateral violence. Like we could be mad at bigger things and, and more powerful things, but that's like a little bit too hard. So we're just mad at each other. Yes, probably. I mean, like, I'm, I'm so glad you're in our community and you're thinking in such a big picture way about taking it to the Hague and taking it to the feds and so forth, because I feel like that's where we can make progress as activists and community organizers. Like, what do you do with all your rage and your sadness and your despair over seeing people die in our community? You know, it's like if if you can sort of elevate it to that level, it's it's helpful. And then when we're just engaging in lateral violence and hating on each other and, <laughs> you know, beating up women and stuff like that, like that's not helping. No, no. I mean, there's a lot of talented adoptees out there and a lot of smart 
adoptees out there. We are just trying to find them and trying to have them come and join us so we can actually become stronger. So how can people find you if they if they would like to join? Just through our website. It's www.adopteehub.org. But yes, this is an all-volunteer organization. I also am a volunteer. I actually work full-time. Amy, I just want to express so much gratitude for um, this interview and for you being on planet Earth and doing all this community service and activism over the years. It's such an honor. So thank you so much for contributing to the book and for spending your time with us today. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. And it's so great to hear your voice. Thank you. This recording was produced by University of Minnesota Press. Outsiders Within is a landmark publication that explores transracial adoption and the heavy emotional and cultural toll on those who directly experience it. For more information, visit z.umn.edu forward slash outsiders within.